0: Many years ago, there was a scandal, we're not going to talk about what it was, but a scandal around an American politician that became a very public spectacle, and one moment that leaped out at everyone who watched this unfold during the trials was this politician's response to a a particular question, a question that would have revealed his transgression, and he said, well, it depends on what is, is. Right? In that instance, questioning the meaning of is seemed like an obvious ploy to avoid the necessary answer. There are cases, though, when the meaning of is becomes very important. And before us is the case where Paul recounted Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper, which has prompted extended Serious reflection about what is means here. When Christ says, this is my body. He took bread saying, this is my body. He took wine saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. How do we make sense of his points here and how do we make sense of them in light? The problem Paul had used this to address. These are the issues we need to take up from our, our passage Tonight we will see that the correction of divisions is, is going to occur in the Lord's table, right? In in its significance. But before we get to the details of this passage, I think at this point this is a long letter, and we've been in it for a long time, <laughs> and, and I think that it might help us if we get our bearings again as we run into this very problem. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed a church marked by disagreement and strife. In all Writing all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers." In chapters 1 to 4, so we see that divisions, factions, is something that runs throughout this letter. And it's a problem in this church. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul traced that problem through debates about preachers. And who was better among Peter, Paul, and Apollos? The church was dividing. By aligning with a specific leader whom they found most prestigious. Paul's point reminds churches today to stay unified in the gospel, certainly avoiding arguing about who the best preacher is. In chapters five to seven, he handled problems that caused divisions in more subtle ways, right? There was, there was such rampant sexual immorality in this congregation that a member was sleeping with his father's wife church members were suing one another over issues that could have been legitimately legitimately handled with the help of church leaders and it seemed various people uh, various members in the church were also trying to impose unbiblical expectations within the marriage and for the issue of marriage in general Breaking up divisions by disagreement about what was right, or making this by dividing people among what was right and wrong in these issues. In chapters 8 to 10, Paul took on the split between those who saw no problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols and those whose consciences were plagued by the thought that Christians may have something to do with anything from their Former life and cultural connections. Paul said, "For the sake of unity, to pre- to preserve your brother or sister in good conscience, get ready to give up your rights and come together in the gospel." So then, as we as we lead into chapter eleven, right? We, a few weeks ago, we took on the first half of this chapter. At that juncture, then we've seen the pattern of divisions. Why head coverings there? I think two reasons. If we if we think about the structure of this letter, first uh, he began that discussion, eleven uh, chapter eleven verse two to sixteen with a with a commendation for the Corinthians. They they were doing well in keeping the traditions that that were given to them by the apostles, and so Paul hit pause on the rebukes to praise them right before he led right into some of his most trenchant criticisms it was a, i think i think it was a pastoral move to encourage them for a moment i think we can take something away even from that you you can be negative in any form of relationship right you can be negative only for so long before people shut off you have to engage the relationship, not just make demands and a, a stream of criticism that is unrelenting, without re-engaging to encourage someone, it falls on deaf ears eventually. And Paul knew that, so I think that's I think that's the first reason why he takes on head coverings there at the beginning of of chapter eleven. Second, I think if we if we follow what uh, unfolds carefully, I think the head coverings issue and his solution there primed the pump on his proposed solution for their abuse of the supper. Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, namely about the head coverings issue, or about wearing them more specifically, if anyone's inclined to be contentious about that, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul concluded in that section then that the Corinthians' use of head coverings and hairstyles properly supported the purpose of apostolic tradition in in their own specific, very particular context. But it wasn't the, the custom of the apostles themselves or of the other churches to use head coverings in these praying and prophesying activities within marriage that explicitly occurred outside worship. So, Paul. So this this is the second reason why I think he he put that discussion where he did. Paul had appealed to the custom of the church, which could change in various contexts to support the principles of apostolic tradition properly. The custom, yeah, the, the implementation can change in varying contexts to support the principle. So. Then as Paul turns to the issues of public worship for which he could not commend the Corinthians, it's it's hard to miss an escalating importance of division, I think. Some didn't like Paul's preaching. Okay, well, I mean, that needs to be addressed for the reasons that they didn't like it, but okay. Then there were ethical problems. Some of those were pretty serious, needed to be handled, but yet solved. Now public worship in chapters 11 to 14. And finally, when we get to chapter 15, Paul's going to hit them about disagreement over the resurrection because that truly is a gospel issue, non-negotiable. So there's an escalation of the issues involved in their division. And here before us is Paul's reflection about the Lord's Supper. So, the main point, as we consider... So, we're we're thinking about verses 23 to 26. Our main point, we must prioritize gospel and churchly principles in our practice of worship. We must prioritize gospel and churchly principles in our practice of worship. So, the three points that will help us consider that is needed changes, needed words and a needed reminder. So first, needed changes. Last time, last week, uh, we saw in verses 17 to 22 that the problem, the problem at the supper for the Corinthians was that they had somehow given preference at the table to those who were more prestigious, probably because of wealth, Right? A reoccurring problem throughout the congregation's divisions, right? That was what was going on with the preaching issue back in 1 to 4. Who's the most prestigious preacher? And now who's the most prestigious at the table? Against that problem, against that problem, in verses 23 to 26, Paul outlined the proclamation in the supper. Both in what the minister says before eating, and what the congregate, congregation does by eating, and that is the corrective, that proclamation is the corrective for the issue dividing them. So this is, this is a, a refocusing moment for the Corinthians. They had celebrated the Lord's Supper joined to a, a full meal. Right? Everybody's actually eating a, a whole plate of food, or at least supposed to be. That was what they were after. When we thought, when we thought about the book of Jude, right? Verse 12, the love feast, as we saw there. Meals, include, meals included the Lord's Supper, often in church, early church practice. That's how they did it. So how some of them did it, at least. After all, Jesus had instituted... The Lord's Supper in conjunction with a, a full meal. And so there was nothing wrong in what the, Cong- the Corinthians were doing as such. But they weren't doing it well. And it was making their observance of the Lord's Supper not truly the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. As Paul had then highlighted about head coverings. The Church of God has doesn't have this custom. As Paul highlighted there, the Corinthians are free to use a different custom to support the apostolic principles, if need be. So too, he noted that even though the typical custom was to join the Lord's Supper with a bigger meal, it wasn't working in Corinth. So they needed to stop. They needed to change custom and eat full meals in their homes, since their use of the custom was fragmenting the congregation, even the purpose of the supper. It's e- yeah. I think it's easy, isn't it, for us to let customs that we come to love overwhelm our concerns we might We might read First Corinthians and wonder what in the world was wrong with them how How could they be so blind as to what they 're doing i mean th- these issues can can seem like such obvious problems to address when we read this letter as Christians today but how how often do Churches split, at least argue, over things that are even less substantial than the things that caused division in Corinth. Churches, churches remodel their building, and people fall out over pews versus chairs. A friend in the, in the U.S. once told me that their discussions during a pastoral search included critiques of, of how much the pastor moved while he preached. Maybe you have preferences about that. That's okay. But do we insist on them? I, I personally have yet to find where Scripture renders essential verdict on these matters. I don't I don't think God demands what color the drapes in our sanctuaries are. And yet we can get certain preferences locked in our heads. Specifically when we are so used to a custom, or I, think, I think this is what happens. We get so used to the custom that we associate it with what must be true of church. It's okay to have customs. These things aren't bad. That's not the point. The point is, Paul said, gospel and churchly principles are more important than any of these customs, any of these preferences. Despite using a long-held custom, the Corinthians lost sight of the principle to be maintained in the sacrament. They had a needed change in their practice to promote the principle. That brings us to our second point, needed words. Needed words. Paul Paul finished outlining the Corinthian problem in the supper by refusing to praise them, even as they followed a long-held custom. Why? Why would he refuse to pra- to praise them in their practice? Verse twenty-three tells us, right? For because... So verse 22, it says, I will not commend you in these things. For because I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I won't praise you because I gave you the essentials and you distorted them. I've given you the stuff that you needed for this. And even though you're, you're doing things that everybody else is kind of doing, you, you've messed up the essentials. So I can't praise you. There's a sum... Core defining the supper and the execution of the supper needs to focus on the sacrament's purpose. There is a non-negotiable element to the supper and then adjustable circumstances that must facilitate the element but further the theological purpose of the supper. So Charles Hodge, probably, in my opinion, the, the greatest uh, theologian to come out of America, Uh, explained an issue concerning debates against the Roman Mass. He commented on our passage, Protestants, however, in contrast to, to Rome, do not hold that the church in all ages is bound to do whatever Christ and the apostles did, but only what they designed should be afterwards done. It is not apostolic example which is obligatory, but apostolic precept, whether expressed in words or in examples declared or evidenced to be perceptive. Paul, how does this come to fruition in our passage? Paul stated the words of institution, the minister's proclamation over bread and wine, that defines the supper's sacramental use for worship. It's not magic. It's God's blessing through what he's told his ministers to do. So, in Matthew 26, 26 to 28, Jesus broke bread and and said, Take, eat, with an implied because... So, take, eat, this is my body. Then, Jesus gave the cup and said, Drink from it, all of you. Explicit here, in this instance, drink from it, all of you, because... This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many under the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said drink because this wine, the wine that he pointed to, was his forgiving blood. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.16, The cup of blessing that we bless, so it's the wine that gets blessed, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Not some full meal that is accidental to the sacrament, but whatever wine the minister blesses by thanks and the bread broken, that's the sacrament. The biblical words set apart the bread and wine so that because of God's word and because of prayer, we can say this is Christ's body. And this is Christ's blood because of word and prayer. Now, clearly, God's word pronounced has relevance for what's necessary in the supper, then. Paul's point was not Paul's point, sorry, was that the supper requires minimal things. Not Not a host of fancy things, not lots of trappings, not endless plates, not a huge meal. Bread and wine, blessed by scripture and prayer. That's what it takes. That's what it takes to be the supper. The Corinthians had expanded it to eclipse, overshadow these actual theological principles. And yet we can, we can see, I think, how that's not just about the supper, this lands more generally. If we think, I mean, the, the power for all that we do in worship and the Christian life, the power is God's word, isn't it? It's not as if, as we come to a sacrament, it's not as if the, the supper is magically worked because of an incantation that we found in the Bible. No, God's life-giving word is what sets apart regular bread and wine, sets water apart, regular water apart in baptism, gives gives power to preaching. It's not the effectiveness of the speaker. We know that. It's the power of God's word that reshapes hearts of sinners and brings the gospel home to us for faith and for comfort. The needed words for the supper are Christ's words of blessing, but for life are everything in the Scripture. For the supper, we need the specific words of Christ's blessing, but the power for all of life is everything in the Scripture. Those are the needed words. Finally, we come to a needed reminder, a needed reminder. We've seen how the Corinthian congregation, as well as churches today, can easily fall into divisions over things that are not essential to the supper or to lots of other things. Rather, though God's word preached, then read, and prayed over bread and wine are the needed parts of the supper, why why is that the case i I think that that's where we need to camp more personally for the rest of this if if our danger is to fall into divisions over things non-essential to the lord's supper right that was their specific problem but we do it in other ways but yet paul thought God's word preached and read and prayed over bread and wine. That's the needed part. Why? Why is that needed? Because the purpose of the supper is very focused on proclaiming the Lord's death as we eat together. The Lord's Supper is very focused on proclaiming the Lord's death as we eat together. Verse 26. For, because, as often as you, plural, Greek hides plural and singular versions of you. So this is, yeah, if if we took a trip to my, my hometown, right, we'd say, for as often as y'all eat this bread and drink this cup, y'all proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The sum. The sum of the supper, as Shorter Catechism 96 says for us, is by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. By, that's what we do, right? By giving, so it takes all of us, by giving, by receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. By giving bread and wine, we are reminded that Christ, right, underline giving at this point. So by giving bread and wine, we're reminded that Christ gave His body to be broken for us and His blood to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We read, that's why giving is essential. In Exodus 24, the, which we read, and the one place outside the, the various the four passages uh, recording the institution of the lord 's Supper, the one place outside those where the phrase occurs, "The blood of the covenant" appears in that passage: Israel is constituted as god 's people by the blood of the covenant as it 's applied to them, right there, there is then." A meal, the blood of the covenant, applied to them, constituting them as God's people, and then a meal atop the mountain where God dines with his people. You see where this is going, I hope. Right? So, so too, as we receive bread and wine, I've thought about why it's given now, as it's received, the supper reminds us of our need to receive Christ continually, and His presence with us. And so we come back to the meaning of is. And what is, is. The wine is, Christ very plainly says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Christ, this wine is the blood of the covenant. Christ's self-sacrifice to forgive sin applied to us as in Exodus, through a meal, accompanying a meal. Bread and wine do not magically become Christ's body and blood. That is not the meaning of is for the supper. Rather, the bread is Christ's body and the wine Christ's blood in as much as, just like God truly dined with his people <clears throat> on top of that mountain, Christ truly gives himself to us spiritually not after a carnal manner but spiritually by faith we have Christ in this meal just as so let's think about this in another context just as God said circumcision Genesis 177 right God's circumcision is his covenant with Abraham that sign is the covenant And so here, the supper is the new covenant. The outward form. Delivering Christ. Right? These things are important. Preaching and sacraments are important because they are the outward way that Christ is delivered to your faith. By the power of God. Christ and His benefits as, right? If we can think about this, circumcision is the covenant. Those animal sacrifices under Moses were the covenant. The, the cup is the new covenant. Different cups deliver the same ice cream. If we can go back to that one. The bread is Christ as his body prepared for him so that, right, as his body was prepared for him so that he might obey the law for you in a body. Psalm 40 quoted in the book of Hebrews body prepared for me so that he might obey the law for you to give you life. The bread is that body of Christ. Life giving. The law keeping Christ's body. The wine is Christ as his blood was shed to bear the law's curse as he was killed for your sin. And yet the incarnate Christ was on a mission Of reconciliation. As Christ gave himself for you to be reconciled to God, right, the vertical, Christ gave himself for you to make you one with God. So also, he gives himself to the church. In this meal, this Lord's Supper, This meal that is the new covenant. Well, that ought to bring us together as the body of Christ. As the Christ who is given to you for reconciliation with God. Well, he ought to be the Christ given to you in this meal that we share together for reconciliation and unity with one another. And So Paul pushes that home. For this congregation, amidst division, the Corinthians needed a reminder that the supper was not about their prestige, but about Christ's death for them. They were sinners needing forgiveness rather than celebration. They need Christ rather than a prestigious seat at the table. The supper is then not a show among the church to pretend that we have more important members whom we can parade. The supper is our joint proclamation together of Christ's death. As we thought about the early church, ate this meal every week, but but however often we eat this meal, we will eat it until Christ returns. That's the frequency reminder that's essential. We do it permanently until he returns. Why? Why is this permanent? because we permanently need Jesus. Each time we gather around this meal, which we will do next week, we gather around it, we receive their needed reminder, the needed reminder, that as surely as we receive bread and wine into our mouths, we receive the forgiveness of sins as we take hold of Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for salvation and we're thankful for the church. And we're thankful that despite difficulty, despite disagreement at times, salvation is not lonely. But that as you reconcile us to yourself in Jesus Christ, you bring us together as a people, as a church family. That Christ died so that we would be as one just as you are one with the Son. And we pray that you would bring that home amongst us. We're thankful that this congregation is is one that loves to bring people in and that loves to be together and that delights in each other's company. And we pray, God, we we beg you to maintain that. We don't take it for granted. We don't presume. We, We beseech you that that which you have worked in us, you would continue to work in us. That here in the middle of London, we would be a community that loves to be together, that loves to love one another, and that we do so because of the Lord Jesus. We we think of those, we, as, as reflected upon Wednesday night, about how many international ministries we know, we think about them. And we pray that you would uphold them as they are far away often from their church families, from people who care about them most. We pray that you would give that to them. We pray for the shepherds as they move to Paris. We pray that you provide for them, for the kids, as they settle into schools. It can be a hard time, and we pray for provision. We pray for Adam and traveling difficulties and and family difficulties in his health, uh, difficulties with his family's health at least and we pray we pray for his ministry to refugees we pray for manuel and alba and just how many things can be discouraging in a place like that when when it's hard to get the church together over the last year we pray for for mike brown and hoping to have his son live with him in italy and we pray for that that would be an encouragement to them it would come through we pray for their church building, that it would be finished in time for them to have their Sunday school classes. We pray for Mihai and his efforts at church planting. We pray for our sister churches closer, for the IPC congregations in Ilford, that they would grow, that you would add to them, that you would encourage them, help them with issues, and for Ealing, that you would sustain them in what they undertake for you. We're glad that they're there, and we're glad that they minister the gospel, and we pray for all of these. We pray even here in our congregation. We pray for uh, Ian and Allison Lee and Joshua. We're thankful for this growing family. We pray, we pray indeed that as you add to them continually, that you would keep them healthy, that you would be at work spiritually in that family, and that you would bless and help them. We pray for other expectant mothers in our congregation, that you would bless and keep them, and that soon that we would have new members of this covenant community whom we can also love and cherish. We pray for families and marriages at any stage, whether they be upcoming, as even there are some engaged couples, or...